Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The last part of this chapter, Paul answers the question, what could be better than being married? And the answer is, being single. Now this is an important message because the church tends to treat single people like they're a little bit out of step. Like they're just a little bit odd. In fact, much of our teaching and much of our programs is directed to those who are married and we kind of often neglect that single person. And so it's easy to slip into the mentality that we have the married and those who missed out. It's like the woman who was at the age when most of her friends were married or engaged, and so one day she went into the woods to pray in the late afternoon. The main request on her heart was for a husband. It grew late, and she continued to pray, Lord, give me a husband. Lord, give me a husband. As an owl in a nearby tree awoke, it spoke in a low, distant voice. Who? She looked up and said, anybody. I'll take anybody. Or the woman who had never been married, who was making out her will, specified to her lawyer that when she died... She wanted six lady pallbearers at her funeral. When the lawyer looked a little surprised, she said, if men won't take me out while I'm alive, they aren't going to take me out after I'm gone. Well, Paul wants us to see in this passage that being single is not a second-rate option. It's not something that you just endure because you couldn't get married. In fact, oftentimes when we talk to singles, we talk to them about how to cope with being single as if it's an illness. Well, Paul tells us in this passage that being single is not something you need to apologize for. In fact, being single is an option that is good And being single actually has advantages over being married. Now, I'm probably going to get into trouble today. So if you're new here at the chapel, let me say this. The Bible has much to say positively about marriage. We just happen to be going through 1 Corinthians, and we happen to be in a passage that is going to give us some balance to the rest of Scripture. We believe in marriage. All of our elders are married, all of our staff are married, with the exception of me, and I'm widowed. And most people here are either married or anxious about it. (laughs) But here Paul presents the advantages of the single life. If you're married, you can listen to these advantages and go, that's why I shouldn't have got married. (laughs) If you're single... I trust that this passage will encourage you and take away the stigma that we often place 
on you. Look at verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins. This word virgins means single people who have never married. It's used sometimes in scripture of females. Uh, it's also used of males in Revelation 14.4. It's used of bachelors. Here in this passage, it obviously refers to both because if you look in verse 26 at the end, speaking to virgins, he says, it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, you'll remember, if you've been with us going through this chapter, that in verse 8, he addresses the unmarried. And we said those are people who were married before but are now divorced. And the widows those who were married before and are now no longer married because of the death of their spouse. And now he introduces the third category of single people, and that is virgins, single people who have never married. And what does he say to them? Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. In other words, the Lord Jesus did not give a commandment relative to single people. He didn't say single people need to marry or single people shouldn't marry. Instead, he didn't give a command. So notice what Paul says. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now when Paul says, I give an opinion, he's not saying that this is not inspired by the Spirit of God. What he's saying is, this is not a commandment. Back in verse 10, he said, I'm going to give you something that is a command that Jesus gave to the married. And then he says in verse 12, I'm going to give you a new command that Jesus didn't give to the married. But now when he comes to the single person, he says, the Lord Jesus didn't give a command. And Paul says, I'm not going to give you a command either. But by the Spirit of God, I'm going to give you an opinion. I'm not going to say you have to marry. I'm not going to say uh, you shouldn't marry. There is no command. Either is okay. But what Paul gives here is essentially some apostolic guidelines. He gives us some suggestions on what would be best. And what is Paul's suggestion? Well, in this passage, he gives some advantages to being single, and then he's going to give some misconceptions about being single. And this is going to take us two weeks to get through. So don't worry if I don't get through the outline. My intention is to get through the first two points of the first point. What are the advantages of being single? Number one, you have fewer problems. Look at verse 26. I think that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. It's good to remain as you are. How are you? Well, in this case, you are single. Why does he say you should remain single? Well, he says because of the present distress. Now, what's the present distress? Well, some people say this was a 
local issue in Corinth, something that was causing distress for the moment that he was making this suggestion for. Although when we try to find out what that is, we can't figure out historically what would have been going on in Corinth at this time. Others say that it's a reference to the fall of Jerusalem, which was going to happen in about 14 more years, that he's saying in view of the fact that there's going to be chaos with the destruction of Jerusalem among the Jews, it's good not to get married. Or others say it has to do with the assault of Nero on Christians that he was talking about in terms of the present distress. Personally, I think there may have been And certainly was some local distress going on in Corinth, but I tend to take this in a broader sense because I think Paul is talking about the tension that exists between the believer and the world and the persecution that often comes, sporadically comes upon a Christian and upon the church. And that was nothing unique to Paul's day. In fact, he said in 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And that reference to the last days in Scripture talks about the days from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. And in that passage, Paul promises that men will go from bad to worse. So I would apply this Scripture to Christians in general because... We always have that tension going on, and the days are always difficult. In fact, this passage would indicate that our days may have even been more difficult than the days that Paul is writing in. So when persecution comes, it's an advantage to be single. Now, Paul was a great example of that. Paul faced a lot of persecution. He went to one city and he got beaten. Then he go to another city and he got stoned and left for dead and then he went to another city and he got thrown in jail it would have been an extra burden if Paul had had his wife with him or even if he had had his wife at home and then you add a bunch of little apostles running around and you've got extra stress and extra problems, an extra concern, an extra fear. So Paul says, because of the present distress, if you're single, it's good to stay that way. And then he says, in fact, everybody just stay like you are. Look at verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. If you're married, don't try to get unmarried. Don't try to get a divorce so that you can be single. And then the rest of verse 27 says, Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. If you have been married and you are now released from a wife, how do you get released from a wife? Well, he talked about it earlier in this chapter. It would be those who are divorced according to the criteria that he laid out earlier in this chapter or those who are widowed or widows because of the death of their spouse. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Stay unmarried. And then notice verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. 
Now, this is why Paul says this is not a commandment. This is my opinion. If you were married and are now unmarried, Paul's suggestion is to stay that way, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And then notice what he says in continuance in verse 28. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. If you've never married, and my suggestion is that you stay that way, but if you go ahead and marry, you haven't sinned because there's no command here. It's just an opinion. Now, I want you to notice something. He says in verse 28, or the end of verse 27, are you released from a wife, do not seek a wife, but if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he makes a distinction between those who are virgins, never married, and those who were married and are now divorced, and I want you to notice what he says. He says, if you are divorced, and again, according to the stipulations that he's laid out here, if you are divorced and you remarry, what's he say? You have not sinned. Now, I want you to see that because there are a lot of teachers today, Bible teachers, who will tell you all divorce is sin and you're never to remarry. This passage specifically makes a distinction between the virgin, the person who's never married, and the person who has been released from a marriage by divorce. And he gives his opinion about what you ought to do, but he says, if a person who is divorced and has a scriptural reason for that divorce remarries, you have not sinned. Now, I want you to grab this passage because it's important because you will hear people say this all the time. And it's, it's exciting to me that scripture specifically tells us here that a person who has a scriptural divorce can have a scriptural remarriage. Okay, that's my soapbox. Now, look at the end of verse 28. Yet, if you do marry, you will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Did you get that? You know what happens when you get married? Trouble. like the fellow who told his friend he said I'm single thanks to Marriage Anonymous his friend said well what's that he said well when I get the feeling that I want to get married I call this number and they send over an ugly woman in cold cream and curlers and she nags me until the feeling disappears When you marry, you get trouble. So you take one sinner. It's hard enough to be a sinner and live alone. But you take a sinner and put them together with another sinner. You say, all right, we're going to make you one, and you're going to move in harmony with each other. Guess what that creates? Trouble. And then you add a whole lot of little other sinners in the house. And you got multiple troubles. 
Take two people. What, what are we? We're proud, we're forgetful, and we're thoughtless. Put us together, you got trouble. Someone has said a woman marries a man expecting that he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, but she does. Listen, don't think that marriage is the ingredient that will solve all of your problems. Marriage is not instant bliss. If you have problems before you're married, marriage will only intensify those problems. I had problems before I got married I didn't even know I had. You know, you live single, you don't realize that you've got problems, and you get married and you you kind of find you had some blind spots, some issues that, that were working fine when you were single because it was just you making selfish decisions. And you get together and it intensifies those problems. If you're miserable being single, you will probably be miserable as a married person. In fact, probably more so. Marriage brings trouble. The most miserable people in the world are not single. Someone has said, there's only one thing worse than waiting to get married, and that's wishing that you had. Paul is saying, if you've got the gift of being single, then I'd like to spare you the trouble of marriage. And by the way, this is the only gift in Scripture that is optional. Every other gift, if you've got the gift of helps or you've got the gift of teaching, you are responsible to use that gift. If you have the gift of being single, he says here, if you use it, great. If you don't use it, great. It's optional. So the first advantage of being single is fewer problems. Second advantage of being single is fewer preoccupations in verses 29 to 31. Notice verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. That word form means the fashion or the way of doing things. What he's saying is the way that things are done in the world is passing away. It's temporary. And he tells us the time has been shortened. That's an interesting statement. It may refer to the fact that God has actually shortened the time in terms of the coming of the Lord Jesus. We're told in Matthew 24, 22, 
too, that unless, or I'm sorry, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. So it may refer to the time of the coming of Christ has been shortened for our sake, or it may refer to the fact that our lifetimes are shorter now. You know, Paul says in Romans 13, 11, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. When we believed, it seemed like it was that far away, and now we've moved on in time, and the coming of the Lord is much closer than it was at the beginning. Either way, he's telling us that time is slipping by and the world is passing away. The older I get, the more I realize that a lifetime isn't all that it's advertised to be. It's short. It's brief. The Bible says we are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Psalm 144.4 says man is a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. As winter comes and we go out and we see our breath in the air, he says that's your lifetime. You see it? And it's gone. Early in the book of Genesis, you read about some people who lived as long as 900 years. You, know, you, you could have a pretty leisurely lunch if you knew you had 750 years left to live. Moses lived to be 120. He didn't even start his most significant job until he was 80. But later, David wrote this in the Psalms. He says that a man lives to be 70, and if due to strength, 80. And about 3,000 years later, we haven't advanced that very much. I read the other day that the average life expectancy for a man in this country is 72 years. It's a little longer for women because they don't have to wear neckties. I like that joke. You know, I spoke at uh, Central's Baccalaureate last spring, and seeing that statistic caused me to do the math. And I said to those students, you know, most of you are 18. I am right now exactly three times 18. Can you figure that out? Which means that I have only 18 more years until, on average, I will be dead. And it seems like yesterday I was going to Central High School and experiencing what those kids were experiencing. People my age like to call ourselves a middle-aged man. I'm like, well, what am I in the middle of? I'm not in the middle of my life. See, I'm toward the end of my lifetime. As someone has said, about the time your face clears up, your mind begins to go. (laughs) Non-Christians seem to realize this sometimes better than Christians. Non-Christians understand that life is brief, and so they say, 
I'd better grab for the gusto. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If you're going to be a passenger on the Titanic, you might as well go first class. That's the mentality of the non-Christian. What should a Christian's response be? Well, our response should be, since life is short, I had better use it for eternal purposes. And the person who is able to do that best is the person who has fewer preoccupations or is at least able to overcome their preoccupations. And I'd like you to notice here that Paul mentions four preoccupations. First of all, he tells us, hold loosely to the world's relationships. Look at verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. You say, I just found my life verse. I'm married, but I don't act like it. Well, that's not what this is telling you. Paul is not encouraging you to neglect your wife or to neglect your responsibilities to your children and your home. What he's saying here is that we need to keep that in perspective. If you're married, there is a higher priority than your wife and your children. And I think some of us as Christians are guilty of hiding behind the fact that we say, well, I'm a good husband and I'm a good father, so I'm committed to my family. And oftentimes we run around doing all the extracurricular activities with our children at the neglect of their involvement in the church and spiritual activities and we end up with a child-centered home rather than a Christ-centered home. And he's saying here, even if you're married, yes, you have a commitment to be the, the best husband you can be, but you have a higher commitment to Christ. Your spouse always takes second place to Jesus Christ. That's the priority. And so Paul is saying, don't let maintaining your home be the major reason for your existence. There are higher demands and higher challenges to life than that. See, marriage is only for this lifetime. In fact, marriage is part of the form of this world that is passing away. Did you realize that? Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, for in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I told a couple this recently that was in my office for premarital counseling and they were very sad that marriage wasn't going to be for eternity. Some of you who are married are saying, I, <laughs> are saying, I wish the rapture would come today. <clears throat> Marriage is not eternal. It's not forever. And if a person 
chooses to stay single in order to be more committed to the priority of serving Jesus Christ in this brief lifetime, then we ought to applaud and honor that person and not treat that person like they're odd and out of step. Because Paul says, even the person who's married needs to understand that marriage is to be held on to lightly because it's a passing thing. There are higher priorities. Second, preoccupation that he deals with. He says, hold loosely to the world's emotions. Notice verse 30. And those who weep as though they did not weep. What's he saying? Don't be too attached to human emotions. Don't let your life be run by the highs and lows of the emotions of life. Don't be overburdened by what happens. Now, this happens oftentimes when someone loses a family member by death. And they're devastated by that. And it is devastating. But sometimes people get devastated and then they say, I can't go on with life because I've lost my wife or I've lost my husband or I've lost a child. What's he saying? See, that, that, that really shouldn't happen for a Christian because what do I know? I know I'm going to be with that person for eternity. So to be devastated by the loss of a loved one so that I am incapacitated and unable to go on with my life is ridiculous for a Christian because of what we know and what the promises are from Christ to us. So he's saying, if you're going to weep, don't be overcome by weep. Don't be preoccupied by that human emotion of sorrow. In fact, when we get to heaven, what's the Bible tell us? God's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And then he gives the other side of that in verse 30 as well. He says, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Don't get carried away with what makes the world happy. Just as you're not to get so carried away with the negative emotion of sorrow, you're not to get so excited about something that happened in this world is only temporary so that that becomes your greatest joy in life. There are far greater joys in the Lord. And so what's he saying? Don't get caught up in the world's emotions. Hold loosely to those things. And then the third preoccupation, he says, hold loosely to the world's commodities. Notice the end of verse 30. And those who buy as though they did not possess. Don't get over-occupied with the world's commodities. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And so Paul is simply saying, you're in the world, 
But the form of this world is passing away, so hold loosely to its relationships, hold loosely to its emotions, and hold loosely to its commodities. Now this is the one that I think gives us a tough time. Because we tend to spend a major part of our thought and energy on the things that we own. And it's often easy for us to get more concerned about our bank account than about our spiritual life. We can often get more caught up in how our houses are decorated and how fancy our cars are than we are in spiritual realities and eternal truths. We are to not be attached to the world system. We are to hold those things loosely. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the earth. You have to buy, but you don't have to possess. You don't have to hold them tightly. We should be holding them loosely so that if the Lord takes them away, he takes them away. And then thirdly, he says, hold lightly to the world's pleasure. Notice verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Now, that same phrase is used a couple chapters over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 18. And I want to show you how Paul uses it here. He says, what then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, I have the right to come and say, I'm preaching the gospel, you guys need to give me some money. But he says, so that I don't confuse people about the gospel, I don't make full use of that right. That's the same phrase he's using in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says, when we use the world, we're not to make full use of the world. We're here, we're living in it. We're using it because it's temporary. But we don't need to claim all our rights to find all our pleasure and happiness and fulfillment in this temporal world. And again, we live around people who are not believers and all of their happiness, all of their fulfillment is attached to the things of this world and this world itself. I saw a show on the Travel Channel the other day. It was, I forget how many places, but we'll say 20 places you need to go before you die. I was thinking that's an interesting mentality. I got to get to these 20 places for my life to be fulfilled so I can die. Paul is telling us here, hey, if you don't get to any of those places before you die, your life can still be fulfilled and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, my fulfillment isn't found in this world. And I think some of us are guilty of finding more fulfillment 
in our retirement plans than we do in our heavenly plans. And he's saying, we're using this world, but we're not to be making full use of it. We're not to be saying, this is my final destiny, and I'm going to find my fulfillment here. So Paul says, hold loosely to the world's relationships, hold loosely to the world's emotions, hold loosely to the world's commodities, hold loosely to the world's pleasure. So let me close by asking you this. What are you living for? What are you living for? Surely it has to be more than having a pleasant home and a retirement plan and wanting to cram in your sunset years all those things that you never got to do and never got to see. Our priorities are to be higher than that. We should have eternal values in mind. We need to give ourselves fully to the pursuit of the things of God. And Paul is suggesting that that is easier to do when you're single because there are fewer preoccupations. If you want to hear the rest of this, you've got to come back next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this great passage that balances out so much of scripture that talks about marriage and the importance of marriage and the significance of marriage and how great it is and how wonderful it is and how it completes us. And Lord, it's so exciting to have a passage here directed to the fact that you call people to be single. And you use people that are single. In fact, you use them more effectively sometimes when they're single. And Father, I pray as we come to understand this passage, for those of us that are single, that we would realize how important this time is to be used for you. To take the extra time we have, the lack of problems, the lack of preoccupations, and invest that time into serving you more effectively. I pray also as a body that we would understand this passage so that we look at single people a different way and realize that you may have gifted them and called them to serve you effectively in this time of their life. And Father, we just pray that that would be true of the singles in our congregation, that we might be truly focused on serving you most of all and using the extra opportunities we have to be your faithful servants. We pray in Jesus' name.